Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 10th, 2013. I feel like this is one of those potpourri programs. <laughs> Somebody once told me potpourri stands for stinking pot, so I, that may be the right way of talking about it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, slow down, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre, needless, wrong just crazy things being said about God um, in, of all places, the Christian church or in Christian churches. This should not be this should not be this way. No, no. <laughs> We've been given a a written revelation. It's pretty easy to get, but there's a lot of folk out there who ain't getting it. And for uh, many and various reasons. So we try to straighten a lot of that out. So, like I said at the uh, top of the program, today is kind of one of those potpourri programs. There is an underlying theme to it, um, but it's, uh, you know, just to say it's a little tough to get to. Uh, hopefully you can all you can all piece it together. But uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, because I literally have so many different little things that I want to get to that it's um, it probably is going to, well, I, I just wonder if we're going to be able to get to it all. Okay, number one, we'll start off with a little bit of levity. Um, remember last week we covered that <clears throat> video that was posted on YouTube called Ordain a Lady? Well, um, Max Holiday's um, Birdcage Theater, Church de Soleil, has come up with its own alternative version of um, this video. And uh, it gives us the opportunity to introduce a brand new Max Holiday character. And what I mean by that is, is that, uh, well, we've got a new character, and her name is Gertrude Krasuski. And uh, and so that's all I'm going to say at the moment. We'll, we'll feature it here in a moment. And by the way, this is a video on YouTube, and it's not going to be part of our normal rotation here at Fighting for the Faith uh, for obvious reasons once we play it. Yeah, that's that's probably the best way to put it. Once you hear... This particular answer to the ordained lady, um, 
video, you will thank me. Trust me, you will thank me that uh, that I have made the executive captain pirate decision to not include this in our normal Max Holiday mix. Otherwise, it would, yeah, you'll see. Um, and as promised, William Tapley, the day of the national championship football game here in the United States, that was uh, Notre Dame versus Bama. Um, he, you know, he asked the question, is this a prophecy? So, you know, we've, we've got to take a moment and take a look at the prophetic tea leaves regarding the uh, <clears throat> uh, Bama's uh, defeat of Notre Dame. Quite decisive defeat in the national championship football t- uh, game that was played just a couple days ago. So we'll take a look at that. Uh, then I got a question. Is, um, well, actually, here's, well, this, I'm not going to go do this in order, but is Judah Smith the next Stephen Furtick? Is Judah Smith the next Stephen Furtick? It's an interesting question to ask. And, and, and along the way today, um, I'm going to take a moment and answer the question what I think, because I've been getting emails and um, uh, Facebook questions and Twitter uh, tweets thrown at me, asking my thoughts regarding Louis Giglio's backing out of the one being the, the, the guy who's going to deliver the prayer uh, at Obama's inauguration. If you haven't heard that, uh, Louis Giglio did back out today and uh, on his own blog gives the reasons why. I will give you my assessment of his decision. Um, then we've got <clears throat> kind of a couple of things here. Um, I, we still haven't gotten to the Fellowship of the Woodlands um, uh, town hall op-ed piece. I want to take a look at that. The name of it is Fellowship in the Woodlands. And then we're going to uh, take a look at a new uh, study uh, that has been revealed. This, now, on the surface, this doesn't sound like it has anything to do with the church, but I am making the contention it has everything to do with the church. But the the uh, headline reads, New Study Reveals Rocketing Narcissism. Actually, that's my reworking of it. But uh, in the United States, the, there's folks in the UK who have a, you know, published at a UK news site a, a, a survey that was conducted that shows that college-age kids in America sure do think highly of themselves and uh, like off the chain highly of themselves. And so we're going to take a look at that story real quick. And then I'm going to make a tie into seeker driven methodology. And you'll understand why when I do it. And once we finish all of that, (laughs) however long it takes, we're going to be going to audacious church in Manchester uh, in the, in the United Kingdom and listening to um, a sermon from their Daydreamers sermon series entitled Dream a Bigger Dream, which I think actually flows rather nicely with <clears throat> the study that we're going to be revealing. So we got a lot of ground to cover. That's uh, that's all I got to say. We've got a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, ground to cover. I think probably I should do this, though. Hang on. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. 
Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Yeah, I think we should start with our William Tapley update. This is our William Tapley update. Music. The end of the world as we know it. That's our William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co-Prophet of the End Times. Update music. Now, as promised earlier in the week, I hmm, warned you. That's probably the right way of putting it. I warned you that William Tapley, you know, he finds prophetic messages in places where there probably are none. um, And does a fine job of teasing out those non-existing um, prophetic messages to let us know the implication of these prophetic messages in such things as sporting events and other things. So, uh, as you know, the here in the United States of America, because we actually have an audience all over the world, so I have to actually kind of set it up this way. In the United States of America, what we call football isn't what other people around the world call football. Football is a very violent and actually very entertaining sport <laughs> to watch but um here in the United States but it's not soccer we call it uh, what other people call f- um football we call it soccer cuz we've got to be different yes <laughs> anyway so here in the United States college football had its national championship game played a few days ago and it was uh, Alabama versus Notre Dame and uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, was Johnny on the spot with the uh, <clears throat> the prophetic angle, which, of course, no news agency was covering. And um, therefore, William Tapley made sure to get his prophetic. <sighs> yeah, you just got to hear it. That's all I'm saying. Here's William Tapley. Today is the national championship football game between Notre Dame and Alabama. And the question is, will Almighty God use this as another important prophetic event about Barack Obama? You know, (laughs) what do you do with this? As you know, many times in the recent past, he has used sporting events to reveal to us that Barack Obama is the leopard. Yeah, no. You see, no, God actually hasn't been doing that. Um, You're the only person on the planet who really actually buys into this nonsense. It's found in Daniel chapter number 7. And as you know, the nickname for Alabama is Bama. So, in this game, will Alabama represent Obama? And, of course... 
Their foe in this game is Notre Dame, which is the leading Catholic institution in the country. Will Notre Dame represent the American bishops? Well, I guess if that's the case, the prophetic tea leaves are not looking good for the American bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, yeah, Obama <laughs> absolutely spanked them. So, And of course, as you should know by now, the American Catholic bishops and the Obama administration are locked in a tremendous struggle over the HHS mandate. This mandate requires all institutions, not just Catholic, to provide free contraceptives, free sterilizations, and free abortifacient drugs to all their employees. Now, if this game is prophetic, I want to give you bad news. I do not think the American bishops had the supernatural moxie to defeat the leopard. Well, there it is. Before the game, it was even played. William Tapley, third eagle Eagle of the apocalypse, co-prophet of the end times, called the game based upon his prophetic skills. Therefore, I am predicting that Alabama will win this football game. If, on the other hand, this is just another ordinary football game, go Irish! Okay, I'm frightened. Okay, so if you were looking for, you know, and trying to, you know, have the book of Revelation or Daniel open and your newspaper open to the sports section to divide (laughs) the prophetic religious tea leaves, there you have it. You you don't even need to do it. Uh, And the best part is, is that William Tapley's service to the world is completely free. (laughs) Anyway, okay, moving along. You know, I'm gonna get the. Uh, I'm gonna do the Lou Giglio piece uh, right now. Here, uh, in fact, let's uh, do our our news update music so that I can do this right here from the PassionCityChurch.com website uh, from their blog. The headline reads: "Change of Plans." The author is Louis Giglio. That's right, Louis Giglio. He writes. Dear PCC family, so this is a a communication to the family that is Passion City Church there in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, who's pastored by Louis Giglio. Here's what it says. Though I was invited by the President of the United States to pray at his upcoming inauguration after conversations between our team and the White House, I am no longer serving in that role. I sent the following statement to the White House today. Quote, I am honored to be invited by the president to give the benediction at the upcoming uh, inaugural on January 21st. Though the president and I do not agree on every issue, we have fashioned a friendship around common goals and ideals, most notably ending slavery in all of its forms. Due to a message of mine that has surfaced from 15 to 20 years ago, it is likely that my participation and the prayer I would offer will be dwarfed by those seeking to make their agenda the focal point of the inauguration. Clearly, speaking on this issue has not been in the range of my priorities in the past 15 years. Instead, my aim has been to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. 
clearly speaking on this issue, the issue of homosexuality, has not been in the range of my priorities, as Louis Giglio's priorities, in the past 15 years. Instead, my aim has been to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ. Does anyone have any clue as to what that means? What what does it mean to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ? That doesn't sound like it's a synonymous statement with a concept of calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, which, by the way, is what Jesus has told the church to do. See Luke chapter 24, somewhere in the neighborhood of verses 46, 47, you know, you'll find it right there. I've never, never in my years as a Christian in reading God's word ever seen anywhere in scripture that the church is called to make its aim to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is his excuse as to why um, um, there haven't surfaced more recent statements on the part of Louis Giglio regarding homosexuality, which is actually a problem. Here's why. And any pastor who is preaching through Scripture, doing their job, preaching the Word, will have no choice, if they're preaching the word, to address the topic of homosexuality on a semi-regular basis. Okay, In fact, it's something that I cover on a semi-regular basis here at Fighting for the Faith because Scripture covers the topic. It needs to be addressed. Okay, And here's the reason why. is because all of us are sinners, every single one of us. And God's Word defines what sin is and what it isn't. Okay? Homosexual relations and lust both fall under the category of sin, just like murdering is a sin, just like lying is a sin, just like adultery is a sin, just, you get what I'm saying, okay, just like coveting is a sin, just like, you get what I'm saying, and the Christian church has been given the mandate to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Therefore, if that's our mandate, then we would be doing a disservice to our friends and neighbors and loved ones who have, well, succumbed to that particular sin because the solution for it is the forgiveness of their sins, and that one included, won by Christ on the cross. But apparently Louis Giglio, okay, he a, a message of his from 15 to 20 years ago has surfaced. 15 to 20 years ago. I'm sorry, but if he was doing his job, there should have surfaced a video regarding his preaching what God's word says regarding homosexual sin that that doesn't date any later than I'll just say two years ago. Okay. Just to be fair. And then he should have, there should be regular intervals from now all the way back to 15, 20 years ago where he is properly teaching what the scriptures teach on this matter. So due to a message of mine that has surfaced from 15 to 20 
years ago. Boy, that's a long time for a pastor to go without talking about that, don't you think? 15 to 20 years ago. Okay, so but his aim, he says, he says, clearly speaking on this issue has not been in the range of my priorities. It's weird. Scripture has this as a priority. Has not been in the range of my priorities in the past 15 years. Instead, my aim has been to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ. I have no clue what that means. We continue with his letter to the White House. So neither I nor our team feel it best serves the core message and goals we are seeking to accomplish to be in a fight on an issue not of our choosing. Thus, I respectfully withdraw my acceptance of the president's invitation I will continue to pray regularly for the president and urge the nation to do so. I will most certainly pray for him on Inauguration Day. Our nation is deeply divided and hurting, and more than ever, we need God's grace and mercy in our time of need. In other words, okay, Louis Giglio, by the way, there are people who are literally praising Louis Giglio for being, uh, well, a martyr. He's not a martyr. He's a coward. He's a straight-up, absolute coward. He didn't want to fight a fight of not of his own choosing because 15 to 20 years ago, he said something to the effect of homosexuality being a sin. So he didn't want to actually engage in a battle regarding that he just wanted to breeze in and into uh, washington dc and pray for the president and breeze out but now that this became so he he decided to back out because well wouldn't want to get into a fight regarding that because it hasn't been within the range of his priorities you see, talking about home, that's not in the range of his priorities. We continue, though. The issue of homosexuality, which a particular message of mine some 20 years ago addressed, is one of the most difficult our nation will navigate. However, individual rights of freedom and the collective right to hold uh, differing views on any subject is a critical balance we as people must recover and preserve. Yet, see, here, um, here's the deal. Um, no Christian pastor has the right to his own opinion regarding this issue, by the way. As a pastor, my mission is to love people and lead them well while lifting up the name of Jesus above anything else. I'm confident that anyone who knows me or has listened to the multitude of, of messages I have given in the last decade would most likely conclude that I'm not easily characterized as being opposed to people, any people. Rather, I'm constantly seeking to understand where all people are coming from and how to best serve them as I point them to Jesus. In all things, the most helpful thing I can do is to invite each of us to wrestle with the Scripture and its implications for our lives. God's words trump. God's word trumps all opinions, including mine, and in the end, I believe God's word leads to life. My greatest desire is that we not be distracted from the things that we are focused on, seeing people in our city uh, come to know Jesus and speaking up for the last and the least of these throughout the world. Honored to be your pastor, Louis Giglio. In other words, as soon as he realized that there, there might be a battle waging and that he might have to actually pick a side and actually have to defend what the scripture says publicly regarding homosexuality, 
he put his tail between his legs and scampered off the battlefield. These are the actions of a liberal and a coward, not somebody who really firmly believes and holds and proclaims what God's word truly teaches. Again, I have no clue what it means to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ. I, I'm sure he's doing a fine job at that, but it doesn't sound like he's calling sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, which is what he's supposed to be doing. Makes me think that uh, in the future, should we ever have a Louis Giglio update, that this is the music that I will be doing or using for those Louis Giglio updates. think that's appropriate. All right, moving along. Okay, from the uh, Max Holiday Birdcage Max Birdcage Theater um, channel on YouTube. In fact, you can find this on YouTube. I, again, I assure you, you will not hear this in the mix here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, the the uh, name of the <clears throat> video is entitled "Ordain a Lady Max Holiday Dub." So if you if you go onto the internet, go to YouTube, you can find this. And pass it along. That being the case, I would like to introduce you to this version of Ordain a Lady. And I, I, I don't know if I'll play the whole thing. But you'll see why I, I, won't, I may not do that very, very shortly. But uh, with that, I have to introduce a, a, a Max Holiday character. And her name is Gertrude Krasuski. And Gertrude is the one who will be singing this version of Ordain a Lady. Um, here we go. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Dream as a goyle, like Therese as Lasso. I need to give this a whirl so I can lead the way. Woman priest is my call, women preaching for all. Don't listen to St. Paul, cause I can lead the way. My ministry's growing, excommunication, I'm still glowing. Empty, straws will flowing. Where do you think the church is going? Hey, I was baptized, and this is crazy, but God just called me. Ordain a lady, justice doesn't look right with only male priests. But God just called me. Ordain a lady, hey, I was baptized, and this is crazy. But God just called me. So ordain a lady, all the other churches try to schmooze me. But I'm a Catholic, so ordain a lady. <laughs> 
some poop in a hat. Close discussion on that, and now he's in my way. I pray, sing, and feel. At First Communion, it's real, but I refuse to kneel to patriarchy's way. My ministry growing, excommunication, I'm still glowing. Empty, jobs are flowing. Where do you think that church is going? Hey, I was baptized. This is crazy, but God just called me to ordain a lady. Okay, that's all I handle. <laughs> but there's little fun little things along the way in the video. That's about half of it. So, again, if you'd like to see it, go to YouTube.com. If you type in ordain a lady, Max Holiday Dub, it should come right up. In fact, if you just type in ordain a lady, it's there in the first few results as well. Uh, the Max Holiday dub version worth passing along, although um, you, your liberal friends probably won't like it. You know, just saying. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Got a Judah Smith thing we got to talk about. We got rocketing narcissism, fellowship in the woodlands. Yeah, all kinds of good stuff coming up on the other side of the break. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. 
Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Morning. It's the job of a pastor to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, regardless of what the sin is. If he's not doing that, he ain't doing his job. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Are you a member of our crew yet? Well, if not, then please remedy this immediately. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get that right there in the middle of the homepage, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One of them says, join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute a mere, and I mean mere. It's not a lot of money. $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. The more people that join our crew, the more people we have in the crew, the more it makes it so that there's not these wild swings in our finances up and then down. And then, yeah, it's like, it's like riding a financial roller coaster, which is not very fun. So uh, the, the, the best, easiest way to, to solve that is join the crew. If you're not a member of the crew, join the crew. It's not expensive. Join the crew. Do you, do you detect a theme here? Join the crew. That's what we'd like you to do. Join the crew. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And just a call, a reminder for those of you uh, who like to cook, you uh, you culinary types out there, we are uh, working on a long-range, long-term, down-the-highway uh, bake sale item, uh, a cookbook, if you would. 
And uh, we need your submissions. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cookbook for the uh, details of the areas that we're looking for recipes in, uh, the email address where you can sub- submit them and, uh, and participate in that. It would be lots of fun. All right, moving along. Now, I, here's the thing. I don't have Judah Smith update music. Um, I don't. And um, I'm not even sure what exactly would be the right music for him. Of course, if you have some musical suggestions for update music when we talk about Judah Smith in the future, I'm open to suggestions. That's all I've got to say about it. So, um, I, But the question I want to ask right now is this. Is Judah Smith the next Stephen Furtick? Now, the reason I ask the question is this is because I think Stephen Furtick is a problem for the seeker-driven leadership. Okay, Now, I am convinced, based upon people who've talked with me, who've defected from the seeker-driven movement, who've uh, taken the time to explain to me how the inner workings work in the seeker-driven movement, that I have a fairly decent idea of how the network works, okay? And there, the, the, uh, uh, how do I put it? The, the illustration that I use to describe it to people is that it's similar to the mafia, <laughs> except for it's, you have to think of the mafia in terms of a network. And so at the very top, there's not a single person. There is a tight inner circle of a few people who are in the inner ring, the inner sanctum, if you would, of the seeker-driven movement, and then it kind of works out in concentric circles in that way. And so there, there is truly a hierarchy there, uh, but it's not your typical hierarchy. That's at least the what I've been told by people who've defected from the movement who understand how the network's leadership works, okay? And one of the metaphors I've used from time to time here is uh, in describing the emergent church. And by the way, you you need to think of the emerging, emergent church as something that isn't dead and gone. It's not. In fact, uh, Rick Warren truly is part of that whole movement. Um, but you have to think of it in, in, in terms of this, that every year, just like your favorite football team or your favorite baseball team, they have a new roster, Okay. And so what happens is is that you know their whoever their cleanup hitter was you know for the past couple of years may have moved up in the organization and is now maybe a player uh, player coach manager type or is is just a consultant or things like that. So you have to think of it that way. Now Stephen Furtick, you know, based upon my observation of how he's you know, in, in particular, you know, who he's hanging out with and the conferences that he's agreed to for this coming year. I think Stephen Furtick has gotten, has, um, well, how do I put this, has made it very clear that he's not going to be controlled by them. He's, 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 he's his own man. And so he has clearly made his allegiance with the tele-evangelists, okay? Stephen Furtick is more akin to an up-and-coming T.D. Jakes type or a Jensen Franklin type. That Those are the people who he has decided to cast his, you know, his lot with, okay? As a result of it, that makes it so that the long-term potential of Stephen Furtick really being mainstream, seeker-driven... The, the chances of that are low. Now, there's still, those are, there are still chances of it, but the problem is, is that he's decreased his, his chances of really being a mainstream, seeker-driven guy because uh, he's clearly gone down the path of somebody who wants to be a, an up-and-coming televangelist on TBN. That being the case, this seeker-driven network has a problem. 
okay, and that is is that they now have an open position on their team. And so they and, – and by the way, this is the other thing. Um, go, go and listen to my lecture, Resistance is Futile. You'll be assimilated by the community so you understand what I'm talking about here. And, and that's this, that those who have a fascistic worldview, the communitarians, um, they are known historically for being a cult of youth. Okay. In fact, one of the th- one of the things that the the 20th century fascists in Italy had a problem with is that they were they were youthful when they took power, but they had been around long enough that uh, they were no longer hip and relevant and youthful. And they what was started off as a very youth organization and movement that embraced and and well um, made li- a lot of the youth. They soon became old they old guys, long of tooth, uh, big of belly, things like that. In fact, th- I think this is one of the primary uh, problems that the seeker-driven leadership is now facing. The guys who 10 years ago, uh, 10, 11 years ago, were the avant-garde, cutting-edge, young, up-and-coming guys, they're balding. They're getting fat. They are starting to look old. They, they're not hip. And so they, they, they need some fresh blood in the mix. And so I'm asking the question, is Judah Smith the next Stephen Furtick? Well, based upon my research and the, the places where he's appearing more and more and the messages that he's giving, I'm convinced Judah Smith is, I think a good way of putting it is, is that he's now in Stephen Furtick's position on their team. In the seeker driven network, I think I think that's the way to put it. And the problem is you got to roll the clock back a little because because he's he's a fairly new guy on the team, and so they've got to groom him and 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 you know and you know bring him up to speed. So he's not quite able to do what Furtick has done in the past. But I think Judah's going to make a a good college try of you know making the best of his position. But again, I ask the question, and I, I'm going to remind people of this, and I'm going to play a couple of sound bites for you, uh, reminding you of what he said at Passion. He used the Lord's name in vain, I think, by my count, at least four times at Passion 2013. L- listen again. I know this is offensive, but we don't, you know, because we're broadcasting on the internet, not over the airwaves. You know, we don't have anything preventing us from being able to do this. And you need to hear it. Here's Judah Smith again. Let me remind you of kind of the moral caliber of this gentleman. Here's Judah Smith and his litany of taking God's name in vain. I like volume. I have to admit, I like volume. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. There's a lot of rocks that you walked by this morning on your way into this dome. There is. Like not one person here this morning walked in from your hotel or wherever you were staying and you saw a pebble or a bit of a larger rock and you stopped. You're like, oh my God, stop. Everyone. Oh my God. Oh my God. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying and thinking, again, I just asked the question, is there anyone out there who's willing to uh, say that this is okay for a pastor? I don't think it's okay at all. Well, Ken Silva, you know, the intrepid Ken Silva over at apprising.org, he's got a, a post up and he's got video of Judah Smith at a youth gathering put on by Hillsong. It was called Jam 2010. And so he's down under. And he's speaking to a group of, 
high school aged teenagers, high school aged teenagers. And I mean, there's thousands of them. And listen to what he said. He's singing a Taylor Swift song. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was a little tough to hear, but the, the gist of it is this, is that he's in front of a bunch of high school-aged teenagers and saying that he, he likes to sing for his wife and that if she likes it, it leads to sex. And my question is, how is this appropriate for somebody who is a Christian pastor? This is off the chain bad, awful. In fact, uh, you know, Silva pointed out that uh, there was, you know, one of the teenagers who was attending this particular uh, conference um, actually showed more wisdom than pastor Judah Smith. Here's what this teenager said. He said, I hesitated about whether it was cool for him to drop that and gross out a lot of the kids who were just having fun and feeling innocent. I know it's good to use shocking things as an opportunity for ministry, but there was something weird about the way that he did it. If it had led into a short edifying sermon for like one or two minutes, that would have been cool. But he just said said it, ruined the mood for a lot of kids, and then changed the subject. I think he pictured it going different than it ended. Yeah, but see, the, which kind of leads to the question is, is if, if he pictured it going differently than the way it ended, why would he think a, a bunch of Christian kids... Uh, that it would have gone any differently than the way it did. You get what I'm saying? There's just some strange stuff going on here, folks. Really, really, really strange. This is not behavior becoming of somebody who is a pastor, let alone a Christian. And, of course, I'm asking the question, is Judah Smith the next Stephen Furtick? Yeah, well, if that's the case, then if you thought Stephen Furtick was bad, can't wait for all the future upcoming Judah Smith updates. I'm sure they're going to be <clears throat> epic. All right, moving along, since we've already done our news update music, this is um, this op-ed piece is written by a gentleman by the name of Mike Adams, and Mike Adams writes for townhall.com. And the name of this op-ed piece is entitled Fellowship in the Woodlands, and listen to what this normally political op-ed guy it was, says about his experience at Kerry Shook's church during the Christmas holiday. Listen, listen in. <clears throat> uh, he writes, most of America's problems are cultural. Even our economic problems stem from the cultural rejection of personal responsibility and the acceptance of collective responsibility. And none of our problems would be as bad if the church was still shaping the culture 
instead of merely responding to it. I was reminded of this during my annual holiday trip home to the Woodlands, Texas. I've attended Christmas Eve services four out of the last six years at the Woodlands Church, formerly Fellowship of the Woodlands, which is a Southern Baptist megachurch that keeps its Baptist affiliation well hidden from the general public. That That is symptomatic of what ails the church in the 21st century in America. Production and marketing take center stage. Core beliefs are lost somewhere in the process. Yeah, they are. Make no mistake about it. The production is good at Woodlands Church. The set is grand. The music is wonderful. Pastor Kerry Shook and his wife, Chris, are largely responsible for that. Their son, a musician living in Nashville, comes home to perform in the Christmas services every year. I've seldom heard a more talented young singer and guitarist. Couched in the musical production of these megachurches, one sees an overwhelming desire to deliver a product that demonstrates the cultural relevance of the church. This is especially true on holidays when the church has more visitors than usual. This Christmas Eve, one of the singers was dressed like Michael Jackson and was moonwalking around the stage as others sang. I didn't see a likeness of baby Jesus in a manger, but I saw a likeness of Michael Jackson in a sequin outfit. Many people uh, dispute whether Jackson was a pedophile. No one disputes that he is still culturally relevant. Nonetheless, it was strange seeing Michael Jackson's likeness on the stage just minutes after the church staff assured parents that the church nursery provided a safe environment for their young children. Megachurches are seldom short on cash or irony. After the music, an enormous train engine, actually it was a life-size model, appeared in the middle of the stage. It It was slowly moved in on a set of makeshift tracks in the midst of smoke and accompanied by the sound of a real train whistle. The pastor boasted that the whistle could be heard all the way over on Highway 242. I agree that the set was impressive. It probably took church staff as much time to build it as would have been required to build a medium-sized home for an impoverished Houston family. Uh Uh-huh. The crowd at Woodlands Church also got to see a YouTube video of a man watching an old train pull into a station. I still don't understand the point of showing the video, which featured a man so excited to see an old train that he took the Lord's name in vain three times. Let that sink in for a minute. This is what he said. The Woodlands Church played, in church, mind you, a video in which a man was taking the Lord's name in vain three times. Well, Judah took it four times, took it in vain four times at Passion 2013. And here's what he says. So they took this uh, this video. The guy took the Lord's name in vain three times, and they did it as part of a Christmas Eve service celebrating the birth of our Lord. It reminded me of the time I took the Lord's name in vain in a lecture at Summit Ministries in 2010. I didn't mean to do it, but it didn't matter. The kids at the ministry let me have it, and rightfully so. I was absolutely in the wrong My question for the megachurch is simple. How did the commandment-violating video get past the entire staff at the Woodlands Church without someone catching it and correcting it? 
it's pretty easy to do an overdub on oh my mm-hmm, to turn it into oh my but the entire staff missed it or perhaps maybe they didn't even care unlike my teenaged summit students senior pastor Carrie shook couldn't see anything wrong with playing that video in church on christmas eve even though its narrator took the lord's name in vain three times he just laughed at it and that was all that mattered the service wasn't meant to honor god it was meant to entertain carrie and chris delivered a joint sermon which had a broad general theme connected to the giant locomotive that stood behind them. The thesis was that we need to relinquish our need to control people and circumstances and instead let God direct our lives. But during the short sermon, Carrie's wife said something rather unusual. It had to do with the holy moments in our lives. It was as morally confused a statement as I've ever heard inside a place calling itself a church. Without batting an eye... Chris Shook stated that all of the moments in our lives are equally holy no matter what we are doing because they were all created by God. So, she insisted that we must learn to live in the moment rather than seek a holy moment because, once again, all moments are holy and equally so. To illustrate the error of Chris Shook's statement, consider these equally holy, and this is in air quotes, equally holy moments, which were all, which were all created by God. Okay, A man sees a woman being raped and intervenes to stop the attack. A man sees a woman being raped and decides to join in. A man gives his wife a dozen roses. A man gives his wife herpes. A man tells his grandmother she is a saint. A man tells his grandmother she is a whore. Obviously, not every moment in our lives is equally holy or God-honoring no matter what we are doing. Everyone knows that, including Chris's husband, Carrie, who contradicted his wife about five minutes later near the end of their joint sermon, Carrie thanked people for coming to the Woodlands Church on Christmas Eve, one of the holiest nights of the year. Put simply, there can be no holier or holiest night if every moment in our lives is equally holy. Either Carrie was right or his wife Chris was right. A cannot be not A. The law of non-contradiction matters. Every right-thinking person knows that Carrie was right. His wife needed to sit down and let her husband, the senior pastor, deliver the correct message, unencumbered by contradictions steeped in moral relativism. The culture teaches moral relativism. The church needs to correct it. Of course, having Chris up there was the most important thing because it shows that the Woodland Church really isn't a Baptist church after all. They let women preach, and that shows that they are culturally relevant. A little bad theology never hurt anyone, now did it? In our holiest moments, we recognize that sound theology must defer to the secular doctrine of feminism. Some doctrines are holier than others, and relativism is culturally relevant, even when it isn't logically consistent. Uh-huh. Exactly. Great op-ed piece by Mike Adams. Again, you can find it at townhall.com. When you get there, go to the search box and just type in Fellowship in the Woodlands. I think he makes some very lucid and sound points regarding 
problems in the megachurches. And while Carrie Shook and Fellowship of the Woodlands is one of those churches that we have unfortunately been reviewing sermons for for a long time here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, one last bit of business before we uh, go into hour number two and do our sermon review. And I think this uh, particular study sets it up perfectly. Uh, this is from the Mail Online in the United Kingdom. You can find this at dailymail.co.uk. The headline reads, How College Students Think They Are More Special Than Ever. Study Reveals Rocketing Sense of Entitlement on U.S. Campuses. Okay. Here's what uh, the Daily Mail reporter reports regarding this study. Books aside, if you asked a college freshman today who the greatest generation is, they might respond by pointing in a mirror. Young people's unprecedented level of self-infatuation was revealed in a new analysis of the American Freshman Survey, which has been asking students to rate themselves compared to their peers since 1966. Roughly 9 million young people have taken the survey over the last 47 years. Um, Psychologist Jean Twenge and her colleagues compiled the data and found that over the last four decades, there's been a dramatic rise in the number of students who describe themselves as being above average in the areas of academic ability, drive to achieve, mathematical ability, and self-confidence. But... In appraising the traits that are considered less individualistic, cooperativeness, understanding others, and spirituality, the numbers either stayed at slightly decreased or stayed the same or slightly decreased over the same period. Researchers also found a disconnect between the students' opinions of themselves and their actual ability. While students are much more likely to call themselves gifted in writing abilities, objective test scores actually show that their writing abilities are far less than those of their 1960s counterparts. Also, on the decline is the amount of time spent studying, with little more than a third of students saying they study for six or more hours a week, compared to almost half of all students claiming the same in the late 1980s. Though they may work less, the number that said that they had a drive to succeed rose sharply. These young egotists can grow up to be depressed adults. A 2006 study found that students suffer from ambition inflation as their increased ambitions accompanying increasingly unrealistic expectations. Since the 1960s and 70s, when those expectations started to grow, there's been an increase in anxiety and depression, Twenge said. There's going to be a lot more people who don't reach their goals. Twenge is the author of a separate study showing a 30% increase towards narcissism in students since 1979. Let me read that again. There's been a 30% increase towards narcissism in students since 1979. Our culture used to encourage modesty, humility, and not bragging about yourself, Twenge told the BBC News. It was considered a bad thing to be seen as conceited or full of yourself. Just because someone has high self-esteem doesn't mean they're a narcissist. Positive self-assessments can not only be harmless, but completely true. However, one in four recent students responded to a questionnaire called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory with results pointing towards narcissistic self-assessments. Narcissism is defined as excessive self-love or vanity, self-admiration, or being self-centered. Twenge said that a 
That's a trait that is often negative and destructive and blames its boom on several trends, including parenting styles, celebrity culture, social media, and easy credit for allowing people to seem more successful than they really are. What's really become prevalent over the last two decades is the idea that being highly self-confident, loving yourself, believing in yourself is the key to success, Twen said. Now, the interesting thing about that belief is that it's widely held. It's very deeply held. And it's also untrue. Despite a library's worth of self-help books promoting the idea that we can achieve anything if we believe that we can, there's very little evidence that raising self-esteem produces positive real-world outcomes. Quote, if there is any effect at all, it's quite small, said Roy Baumeister of Florida State University, who authored a 2003 paper on self-esteem studies. Baumeister found that while successful people did have high self-esteem in many cases, it was unclear what actually caused their success in the first place. Both self-esteem and, uh, and success were often influenced by another factor. Coming from a good family might lead to both high self-esteem and personal success, Baumeister said. Self-control is much more powerful and well-supported as a cause of personal success. Despite my years invested in research on self-esteem, I reluctantly advise people to forget about it. Twenge compared it to a swimmer trying to learn to turn who needs to believe that learning the skill is possible but who won't actually be able in acquiring that skill by their belief. Quote, you need to believe that you can go out and do something, but that's not the same as thinking that you're great, Twenge said. Studies suggest weaker students actually perform worse if given encouragement at boosting their self-esteem. An intervention that encourages students to feel good about themselves, regardless of work, may remove the reason to work hard, Baumeister found. But if you found yourself bothered by a person uh, always talking about how wonderful they are, remember that their future may not be bright. Um, in the long term, what tends to happen is that narcissistic people mess up their relationships at home and at work, Twenge said. Although narcissists may be charming at first, their selfish actions eventually damage relationships. It's not until middle age that they may realize that their lives have had a number of failed relationships, and even if they recognize something is wrong, they may have a hard time changing. It's a personality trait, says Twenge. It's by definition very difficult to change. It's rooted in genetics and early environment and culture and things that aren't all that malleable. Okay, now, the reason I read this, okay... Now, I understand that this has zero, absolutely zero to do with the church. This is a survey conducted of, you know, college students and what they think. Well, here's the idea, okay? So if you have an entire group of young people out there, young people who think really highly of themselves and are, you know, and, you know, are scoring high on narcissistic uh, personality inventories and well there's not a lot of the kids you know young people in the church in fact there's a lot of youth leaving the church according to the seeker driven movement um the way to attract more uh youth would be to uh craft the worship experience on on sunday morning or saturday night depending um, to craft the, the message and the experience to cater to the felt needs of the market demographic that you're trying to reach, right? Okay, so here's the idea. 
Young college students, this survey gives us objective evidence that their primary self, uh, well, felt need is self-love, right? So therefore, if you're going to follow the seeker-driven methodology uh, and be consistent, you know, in order to reach a market demographic, you must preach to meet their felt needs, well, then the way for the church to get more young college students into church is to cater to their felt need of narcissism, right? Now, imagine the absurdity of this, right? So some enterprising young vision-casting pastor decides that he's received a vision from God and he's going to plant a seeker-driven church that caters to the felt needs of college students. And so every single Sunday, he gets up and tells these kids, they're the greatest, they're the best, and, and teaches them to say things like, I am strong, I am powerful, I am mighty, I am, I am, six. wait a second, <laughs> sorry, um, this isn't hypothetical, is it? No, not at all. See, this is the reason why Joel Osteen's church is successful. This is the reason why Stephen Furtick's church is successful. This is the reason why a lot of mega church pastors are successful. Why? Because rather than preaching law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, they're catering to people's sinful felt needs the felt need of self-love and narcissism. And that's why their messages are what they are. And, you know, in in seeker-driven logic, this study just gives them objective proof that they need to grow the church by, well, helping cater to people's narcissistic tendencies and helping them improve their egos and their self-image. But by doing so, They're not doing what Christ has told us to do. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. I wanted to point this out, or at least bring your attention to this survey, because I thought it would be a good segue, or at least, you know, prepare the way for the sermon that you're about to hear in hour number two. So uh, with that... We're going to go into hour number two here. Uh, take our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. A sermon entitled Daydreamers Dream a Bigger Dream. Yeah, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. (laughs) 
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. And yes, I have my gunners on. Now, I don't play video games, but <laughs> I have to wear my gunners every day at work when I'm researching and all that kind of stuff because otherwise I get to the end of the day and my eyes feel like I they're on fire. All right. Here we go. Let's do this right. Hey, ho. Hey, ho. We got the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon? Yeah, question mark. Comes to us via Audacious Church. They're audacious. Um, In Manchester in the United Kingdom... The name of said sermon is entitled Daydreamers Dream a Bigger Dream. I think the question we should be asking while listening to this sermon is, um, is this a correct handling and exposition of God's word that leads those listening to repent of their sins, strips away their self-righteousness, and then points them to Jesus Christ as the only solution, their crucified and risen Savior, who died on the cross for their sins. 
Yeah, calls them to deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow him. Or is this sermon really the type of thing that is meeting the felt needs of young narcissists in the UK whose primary felt need is their own self-love? I think it's a fair question. So uh, without any further ado, here's Glenn Barrett and his uh, sermon entitled Dream a Bigger Dream. Here we go. I trust you ate too much over Christmas. I did. My banoffee pie was a hit. I made three of them. I got one slice because the rest of them got stolen by family and friends. But, um, you know, what a great time Christmas and New Year's. One of the reasons I love Christmas and New Year is because it means I get a concentrated time with my children and with the children of family and with the children of friends. And I love Christmas. I love seeing the eyes of my children when they get their presents in the morning. We have a tradition on Christmas Day that the last present that our kids get is at the end of a treasure hunt. So there's an envelope on the Christmas tree and they take it off and they go and they begin to discover, you know, uh, the clues. They work it out. They finally end up finding the present, which is their main present. And, uh, you know, it's an exciting time. But the thing I love about Christmas and New Year, we've just spent the last week with Pastor Jason Gowland, his wife and the kids, is just watching the children play is a really fantastic thing. I love watching kids play. Can I just suggest that you don't go up to a park and watch kids play? You may get, you know, uh, locked away for that. But next time you're kind of around the vicinity of children, watch the way children play. Because when children play, they invariably use this phrase, let's pretend. And you know that as soon as they say the words, let's pretend, then all of a sudden they have whisked us away into another world. It's an imaginary world. Okay, notice the starting point. His starting point is not God's word, but um, a common experience that all of us share. But see, the thing is, is that uh, when I was a child, I thought like a child, but now that I'm not a child, I've put childish things away. So why is it that something like this is being held up as something that we ought to be doing as Christians. We continue. Where there are no limitations, anything can happen, anything goes. And I love that. And I was watching the children play over Christmas and New Year, and I began to realize, have you noticed, that children don't dream small dreams. They're dreaming of being princes and princesses. They're dreaming of flying to the moon. They're dreaming of, of being great builders, great architects, people who will, who will help people out. I've discovered this. Children never dream of being a pastor. I've never seen a three-year-old child or a four-year-old go, hey, let's pretend we're pastors. Good idea. I've never seen it. While I'm at it, having picked on myself, I've never seen a child go, let's be a plumber. Never seen it. There's a whole heap of things that I... Children, you know what they do? Is they take away all their limitations. They don't dream with limitations. They dream in this imaginary world. Let's pretend. And whilst watching the children, I began to ask myself the question, where did it begin to go wrong for us? At what point did we mature? At what... So we're supposed to all be a bunch of Peter Pans and never grow up? And hang out with our friends and say, hey, I have an idea. Let's pretend that we're in a rocket ship and we can go to the moon. Yeah, all of a sudden maturity is a bad thing. 
point did we step out of let's pretend where there was no limitations and which point did we begin to step into the world of limitations and difficulty? At which point did our dreaming move from having no boundaries to being something that has boundaries and limitations all around us? Simple. There's this thing called reality. And always living in an imaginary play world makes it very tough to pay your bills. I guess if you are like me and most people in this room, you reached a moment in your adult years, maybe as a teenager, where these words, let's pretend, no longer came out of your vocabulary. Right. Now, here's a question I have for you, Glenn. Um, So does Jesus want us to live as basically... It's childishly. Is that how he wants us to live? So all of a sudden, living in a fantasy world and pretending all the time and not being able to live in reality and having limitations because the real world has them, this is what Christianity is against? I remember once playing outside my mum and dad's bedroom on the grass. Their window was open, playing with a friend called Ian. And my mum came out and she shook her head at me. She said, boys, your imagination is absolutely crazy. We reach a moment, don't we, where our imagination, our dreaming matures. And our dreaming then has constructs of limitation around it. We begin to label dreams with the idea of fairy tale. And we know that fairy tale belongs to Disney. And we know that Disney, sorry Wayne and Hannah, is not actually true. What went wrong? What happened in our life where all of a sudden we went from dreaming where there were no limits to dreaming with a set of rules and guidelines around us. Well, thankfully, the Bible actually speaks into this. The Bible actually speaks into the very idea of you and I being uh, designed by God to dream without limitations. In fact, I've discovered that the Bible is a book of dreams. Really? The Bible is a book of dreams where we're... So the Bible's encouraging us to dream without limitations. That's odd. I'm not familiar with any of that. I began to do a word search through the scripture. You you did a what? You did a word search. Uh Uh-huh. Rather than studying your Bible and finding out what the Bible says on its own terms in context, you did a word search looking for the word dream. Uh Uh-huh. Genesis to Revelation on the word dream, uh, in, in my Bible anyway, it comes up 180 times, just the word dream. And it's an amazing word. 40 times, the, the, the book with the most condensed usage or the most amount of usage of the word dream is the book Genesis. The foundational book of the Bible is based in dreams. I wonder if you realize here that we are here this morning because someone dreamed a dream. We actually stand on the shoulders of another person's dream. The first dreamer was God. Yeah, there's so many problems. Hard to nail it all down, isn't it? Where God, back before time began, God sat and he dreamt about a people who would willingly choose to worship him, willingly choose to honor him. He dreamt about you. The Bible says, since before you are in your mother's womb, he says, I knew you. 
The Hebrew word new is the Hebrew word to be one with something. So before you were conceived, God was one with you. Psalm says this, he knit me, he knit you together in your mother's womb. I think I've told this story before, but my nana used to knit. My nana, my memory of my nana is just sitting in our lounge room in Australia. She would knit and whatever, you know, uh, scarves and jumpers and cardigans and, and all these sorts of things. And I would go to my nana and I would say to her this, I'd say, Nan, what are you knitting? And she would say to me, I'm knitting a scarf. Second question, what's it for? It's to keep your neck warm. Third question and most important question, who's it for? Because it's pink and I don't want a pink scarf. She would say, it's for your sister, Sean. What is You sound a lot like Dudley from the um, Harry Potter movies. Is it? What's it for? Who's it for? You know, there came a time when God was knitting you together in your mother's womb. And I can almost hear the angels. He can almost hear the angels. Listen to what he's saying. He's referencing, kind of, sort of referencing a biblical passage. Coming up to the throne of heaven and saying to God, God, what is it? Well, it's a Paul Garner. What's it for? Well, it's to carry my purposes, my dreams to the planet. Who's he for? He's for my glory, for my enjoyment. The Bible starts with dreams in Genesis. In fact, when we get through to the New Testament and we arrive at the Christmas story, we arrive at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, and we have this verse here. It says, but after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Already we've got Jesus coming. The story of Jesus is being birthed here in a dream. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, having been warned in a dream, the wise men decided to go back to their country through another route. Verse 13 says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. A little bit later, verse 19, it says, Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. God is the God of dreams. Okay, now I'm going to point this out. This is obvious. I mean, I'm sorry, but the people in Great Britain should know better than this. And the reason I say that is because I consider Brits to be well-educated people. He's, he's equivocating. He's, kind of, he's using two different definitions of dreams. For instance, okay, if I were to ask you, what do you dream about being or doing five years from now? Or I hear you're going on vacation. What's your dream for your vacation? Okay. What that is, it's a set of expectations or a hope or some, something that you're, uh, you're, you're striving to attain or achieve. It's a dream for your life. That's the way we talk about it. And that's one type of dreaming. The other type of dreaming is, well, you fall asleep. When you fall asleep, well, you have dreams. Sometimes they're weird. Sometimes they're strange. Sometimes they're scary. The scary ones we call nightmares. That's a different type of dreaming, okay? It's not the same as when you're dreaming about a particular thing. Now, in Scripture, there's another type of dreaming, and that's where God reveals things to somebody or gives them a prophecy, and he does it through a prophetic dream. That's a different type of dream altogether. 
going to Matthew and pointing out that Joseph dreamed a dream or was warned in a dream to take Jesus and skedaddle is not the same as you dreaming about your future, nor is it the same as, as you just falling asleep and having a particular dream. Okay, It's a third type of dream altogether. He is not making any of these distinctions, and he's interchanging the definitions because he's not interested in telling you what the Bible really says. No, he's meeting the felt needs of narcissists. We continue. Sometimes we can wake up having had a strange dream. You know those strange dreams you have at night? And all of a sudden just go, well, it was just a weird dream and shake it off. But I want to tell you, church, God speaks to us in dreams. T. Lawrence got it right that those of us who dream in the dusty recesses of our mind while sleeping, we awake to discover it's vanity. But I want to tell you something. You should wake up in the morning having dreamed a dream and say, God, is that you or is that the curry? Because sometimes it's the curry. But sometimes it's God. But more powerful than that are those who have their eyes wide open and begin to dream about their life, to dream a dream. The key person we're going to look at over Sunday, this Sunday, the next few Sundays, is the life of Joseph. Because in Genesis chapter 37, verse 5, we read this phrase, Joseph had a dream. Joseph had a dream. If you've read the account here in Genesis chapter 37, you'll know that Joseph dreamt that his family, his friends would bow down before him. He had a dream. Joseph's dream actually went from bad to worse because when he shared it with people, he discovered that those he shared it with were not too happy with him about his dream. Now let's make something clear. Was this Joseph's dream for his life? He wanted to have people bow down to him? No. What kind of dream was this? Was this the, the grand plan that he had for his life? No. This was a prophetic dream. Lesson to be learned. Be careful who you share your dream with. Andy Stanley from the States last night tweeted this. If you live with a dreamer, don't say to them how, say to them wow. Because Joseph shared his dream his brothers despised him, the Bible says. They then threw him in a well. The Bible says they took him and they sold him into slavery. He then worked in a house where he was accused of rape. He ended up in a prison. He ended up interpreting a dream. He ended up being forgotten and abandoned. And then his dream came true. I want you to notice there was a big distance between the inception of the dream and the fulfillment of the dream. Sometimes what happens is we will find ourselves in a well called financial difficulty, though we've had a dream of a business being a success, and we can begin to filter down our dreams. But I want you to notice that the life of Joseph, his dreams and dreams coming true are exactly the same as you and I. We will in our dreaming have good days. We will in our dreaming have bad days. We will so notice what he's doing. He's completely interchanging these different definitions of dreams. He's allegorizing the story where Joseph was thrown into a well. He's not actually telling you the biblical story, which, by the way, the story of Joseph is a fantastic foreshadow of Christ. Okay, in so many ways. It's great to tease all that out. But he doesn't care about any of that because he's not interested in preaching, you know, the Bible. He just wants to, he wants to meet the felt need 
felt needs of narcissists and tell them that they that God wants them to dream big dreams, just like Joseph. But Joseph didn't dream big dreams. That's not the kind of dream that Joseph had. We continue. We'll have seasons where it feels like the dream has finally come true. And there will be other moments when it feels like the dream has been pulled away from you. But my friend, if you can stay faithful to the God dream. Here's our problem this morning. Our problem is that our dreams get infected. They get infected by all sorts of things. We had a dream. We had blue sky thinking, this moment where we dreamt with no limitations and then our dream got infected. How does our dream get infected? How does it move from being let's pretend to being a dream full of limitations? The first way that my dreams get affected or infected is they get infected by me. I am my own worst enemy when it comes to my dreams. I guess we've said this a hundred times with the life of Moses, but when God said to Moses, Moses, I choose to use you, Moses said, who am I that you would use me? God speaks destiny to Moses and Moses responds with his identity. Do you know, if I can't see myself the way God sees me, then I'll never be able to truly fulfill that which God has dreamt for me. It's the same for you. If you can't see yourself this morning the way God sees you, What passage of scripture says that? Not one. He's not actually teaching anything that the Bible really says. He's just taking taking you to a passage where somebody had a dream, and then he has hijacked the passage and is telling you all the stuff that it means without any warrant from the text to say that that's what it means. He's just making stuff up at this point. But boy, if, you, if you're narcissistic, your felt needs are being met in spades. Most beloved son, the most beloved daughter, someone who he loves, someone who he cherishes. Okay, I'm going to point something out. I got to back this up to do this because watch what he's going to do here. You are the beloved son of God. That's what he's saying. Listen again. Be able to truly fulfill that which God has dreamt for me. It's the same for you. If you can't see yourself this morning the way God sees you, the most beloved son, the most beloved daughter. Really? I thought that was Jesus, the most, the, the only begotten son of God. You know, when Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All of a sudden, I'm the beloved son? Really? I thought I was the adopted son, the sinner, the slave who was purchased and redeemed. Yes, I'm loved of God, but to say I'm the beloved, well, that would make me Jesus, and I'm not. Neither are you. Someone who he loves, someone who he cherishes. The one who he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will always be with you. He says, I will shelter you under my wings. He says, I will be your strong tower. I will be your firm foundation. He says, I am Jehovah Nissi, the Lord, your banner that you walk under. You walk behind into every circumstance and situation. But you know, I am my own worst nightmare when it comes to my dreams from God. Because just like you, there are times when I look at the dreams of God in my heart and go, how on earth am I going to do that? Well, I love Sophie's message some months ago. In my weakness, he is strong. 
Now we're just quoting verses out of context. They, they don't have anything to do with you achieving a dream that God has given you. You see, for Joseph, Joseph was his own worst enemy when it came to the fulfillment of his dreams. I don't know if you know this, but before Joseph had the dream, his brothers didn't like him in the first place. Yeah, why don't you read the story for us? I mean, that would be nice. In Bible college, one of the first lessons they taught us at Bible seminary is this, is they said to preachers, preachers in learning, get this. If people don't like you, then they have every reason not to buy into the message that you are conveying. A great theologian called E.M. Bounds, he said this. He said, the man or the woman who preaches, they are the message. So this morning you get more than... No, they're not. Christ is the message. Man, this couldn't be more backwards if he tried. ...than just words on a page, you get the message that is uh, God's message that God has deposited within me. That's what we get this morning. But you know, this morning... The message that God has deposited in you. I thought your job is to preach the word, the message that God has inspired his authors to write in the biblical text. See, this is the problem. Now, all of a sudden, I'm supposed to believe that Glenn Barrett has received a vision from God, a message that God has given to him and that he has, has got to give it. No, Glenn is supposed to be preaching the same message I preach because the message we're both given to deliver is found in Scripture, and the Scripture's about Christ, not your dreams. If there are people here sitting and don't go for a show of hands because that'll intimidate me and then I'll become my own worst nightmare, if you don't like me, then you can easily go, you know what, that message, well, that's pretty good for some other people, but I don't like him, therefore I don't like that message. It's called postmodernism. But Joseph didn't go to Bible seminary. He didn't sit. That's not called, that is not postmodernism. You don't even know what it is, do you? Good night. Sit with a professor of theology who said this, listen, mate, people have got to buy into you before the dream comes true. So be likable. In chapter 37, verse 2, we read this, that Joseph brought his father a bad report about his brothers. So in verse 2, Joseph was a telltale. And nobody likes a dobber, do they? If you should see my son's eyes when my daughter dobs him in. Oh my goodness. He wants to kill her. You're a dobber. You told on me. No, I didn't. And then you see him trying to get out of it. Joseph didn't realize that by telling tales on his brothers, he was instantly making himself not a likable character. Verse 3 goes on and it says this. Now Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate rope for him. Rope for him. So not only was he a telltale, but he was also the spoiled child of the family. And how many of you know, none of us like spoiled people, do we? And then verse 5 says, Joseph had a dream. Can I just say this about the dreams of God for you? Be a likable person. Be nice. I meet some Christians and I think to myself, you're just not even nice. Sure, you may be going to heaven, but could you tell your face that? (laughs) And tell your attitude, for goodness sake. Key things in being nice. Keep light accounts. Don't let the sun go 
down on your anger, the Bible says. Learn the biggest lesson that we've all got to learn, folks, how to forgive. To smile. To look people in the eyes when you're talking to them. I've discovered this, that people love to talk about themselves. So ask them questions about themselves. And then when you walk away, they're going to say about you, wow, he's the nicest person ever. They didn't find out anything about you. They just talked about themselves. I am my own worst nightmare when it comes to my dreams. Another thing that infects my dreams, that really kind of affects the way I do things, that affects my thinking, it affects my pursuit of my dreams, is other people. Other people really affect my dreams. In, in Genesis chapter 37, verses 8 to 10, it says this, His brothers said to him about his dream, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he had said. Other people can infect our dream because it's amazing how other people try to become expositors of our dream. Have you noticed that? What? Oh, man. I... I think that just playing this guy's sermon is a critique almost in and of itself. This is just preposterous. Whenever you try to share your dream with somebody, they begin to try to translate it or begin to interpret it for you and begin to shape it and begin to say, this is what it looks like. And I find that more and more people end up living a life that they weren't actually destined to. They end up saying in their 40s, how did I get here? Because we allowed somebody else to become an expositor of our dreams. I was 12 years old when I was called in into the ministry to do what I'm doing now, to lead church. And went to Bible college when I was 20 years of age, studied theology for three years, met, fell in love with Sophie. We got engaged, decided that we would get married at the end of Bible college. So we graduated from Bible college. Two weeks later, we got married. But in that third year of Bible college, having the call of God upon our hearts, the dream was to, to plant churches and to, and to preach. This was the dream. It was amazing that the more I began to share it with people, more and more people had opinions on what that would look like. Now, I understand that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. The Bible says that. But you've got to be careful which counselors you're confiding in. It's pointless going to the Sumo Association to ask them about weight loss. They're not going to help you. They may be counselors and they may be a multitude, but how many of you know the advice is not going to be great? Yeah, I agree. I mean, why would you want to go to a seeker-driven church to learn about Jesus and sound doctrine and what the Bible really says? Yeah, wrong, wrong advisors. In the third year of Bible college, God really began to put a dream on our heart to come back to England. I would be watching the bill at 8 p.m., in the evening on channel ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the, the cheap version of the BBC. And I remember as I was watching the bill and I was watching the, the boots of the policemen as they would walk at the end, you know, and, uh, you know, I watched the cars. I began to fall in love with England all over again. The dream was to, sure, to preach and to plant church and to pastor and to do what we're doing now, but the outworking of that met its challenges as we began to share with people what God was putting on our heart. I remember a great man... Rather than sharing what's in the scriptures. Got it. And 
came to us and he said to us, listen, we don't believe that you should move to England because we've invested in you to stay in Australia, so we want you to stay in Australia. A big church of about 7,500 people uh, came to us and said, we would love for you to be our youth pastors. And we felt that God was calling us to England. And, and the pastor phoned me every three days for about three or four weeks. It reached a point where certain pastors got around me and said, listen, what you're doing is not right. You should go there. to be. Do you understand the opportunity that it is? Do you understand what you will get? Do you understand the platform that you will have to preach on? And other people began to become expositors of our dream. Oh, yeah, you don't want that to happen, do you? Because the Bible warns about this like in um, no passages at all. This isn't a biblical sermon. Thank God the dream of God was so clear. England. We didn't know exactly what that meant and what that would look like. But we do know this today. That had we have allowed somebody else to be the expositor of our dream, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. And it's amazing how other people can actually affect our dream. We begin to share with them, begin to say, hey, this is what we're planning. This is what we're thinking about doing. This is what I want to do. And how many of you have had people say, you, really? You think you can do that? Don't think you can do that. There's other people who are far better qualified than that. We've got a dream with our eyes wide open, folks. What is God saying to you? Something else that infects our dream is, is, is the idea of unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled expectations. Joseph had a dream. Joseph's dream was that he would have others bowing down before him, but his dream went from bad to worse, from, from a well. Yeah, notice, I mean, the way he says it, I mean, Joseph, ever since he was three years old, I mean, his dream was for people to bow down before him. You know, and he, some kids want to be firefighters. Some people want to be pilots. Um, but no, jo- Joseph, oh, he, his crazy dream. He always, you know, he, ever since he was a little pup, he's always wanted somebody to bow down to him. Not just anybody, but everybody. Uh, and he, see, this was a grand dream that God had given him. And the, the way he's telling the story, that's really what the conclusion you got to come to. Notice anything wrong with that particular telling of the story? Into slavery, into prison, into actual um, accusations of sexual impropriety, to, to all these sorts of things. It went from bad to worse. And here's what can happen with us with unfulfilled expectations. We can begin to manage our expectations because if we don't expect, we can't get hurt. Every single one of us in this place this morning have unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled expectations in our marriages. We put the ring on the finger and set off with great hope, only to have unfulfilled expectations, to now lessen the dream, to believe for something less. Business people in this place, unfulfilled expectations can squash and can ruin your dream for business and financial success. University students. I guess many of them are still away on vacation at the moment because they only go to lectures about four months of the year or something like that, don't they? But it's amazing how you can get into university with expectations of what the course will look like, only for those expectations not to come to pass. You can even join a church with expectations, only to have unfulfilled expectations disappoint you. It affects the dream. Something else that affects our dream is not just unfulfilled expectations, but also we just got to get serious, don't we? 
come on, get serious. Uh, Glenn, you're 40 now. You can't dream like that anymore. You've got bills to pay. You've got to pay the tax bill. There's things that you need to do. There's, there's a mortgage that needs to be paid. There's a family to look after. And, and all of a sudden, we have to get serious about life because we can't dream like children anymore. Uh, it's all right for children to dream because they have no responsibilities. They have no expectations. They're just free to dream. I want to declare to you this year, Audacious Church, you are still free to dream. We're still free to dream. Wow. Yeah, wow. Because this has absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing, to do with Christianity or the Bible. This isn't based upon any clear reading of any biblical text in context. This is a man meeting the felt needs of narcissists. Don't get so serious that you lose your capacity to dream a bigger dream. Joseph had to get serious. He had to get pretty serious in that well. He had to get pretty serious in that prison cell. When accused of rape, how many of you know that was fairly serious? Serving in Potiphar's house, there were, there, there, were, there were duties and things that he needed to do. We all sure have to get serious, but keep dreaming a bigger dream. Another thing that affects our dreams, and I find really certainly affects my dreams and really kind of knocks the wind out of my sails at times is I begin to look at the kids and I begin to think, well, really, dreaming is just for kids, isn't it? I'm now mature. And with responsibility, with pressure of life. But listen to me, church. God wants you to dream a bigger dream. In fact, the Bible, the Bible is full of it. Psalm 31 says this, How great is your goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you. You know what God is saying to you this morning through that verse? He's saying, dream a bigger dream. Um, let's hear that again. I'm not sure that's what that verse is saying. Let's hear that again. In, in fact, the Bible, the Bible is full of it. Psalm 31 says this, How great is your goodness that you have stored up for those who fear you. How great is God's goodness. Nothing there mentioning dreams at all. You know what God is saying to you this morning through that verse? He's saying, dream a bigger dream. There's more for you, says God. That's not what that passage is saying at all. You're making that up. Proverbs eleven twenty four in the message translation. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Um, even though you're using the message, which is not a translation, it's a paraphrase and a bad one at that, this passage says nothing about dreams or God wanting you to dream bigger dreams. The more generous you are, the more friends you will have. The more generous you are, the more opportunities will come your way. The more generous you are, the more people will like you. The less your dream will be infected by other people because when people see the generosity of your heart, your world will get bigger and bigger. Not to mention, the Bible says, that God loves a generous person. God loves somebody who acts with generosity. And the Bible talks about reaping what we sow the world. You know what the verse is saying there? Yeah, the Bible also talks about the gospel, something you don't seem to be aware of. 
Uh, by the way, did you know that the Bible actually warns us directly about people like Glenn Barrett? It's absolutely true. If you have your Bible, turn to the epistle of Jude. It's only one chapter. I'd like to start at verse 5. Here's what it says. Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, writes, says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and, per- and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, these are the ones who've crept in among them that are not teaching the truth, that they have to fight for the faith for, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious one's yeah, so the Bible warns us about, well, people who rely on their dreams, that we shouldn't be listening to them. Yeah, not not this, this kind of pastor or preacher or Christian. We continue. It's saying this, dream a bigger dream. Not just about what I can get and not just about what I can keep, but how can I be more generous with my time, with my words, with my affection? 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. You know what the Bible is saying to you? Dream a bigger dream. Don't don't just settle where you are. Don't just be content where you are. It's time to dream a bigger dream. Joshua chapter 1, verse 31 says, Is everywhere that you place your foot, I will give to you, the Bible says. Can I encourage you to start prayer walking? Just begin to walk. You want me to do what prayer walking? So that's kind of the old mystic mysticism practice of dream walking or things like that. You want me to prayer walk? Where does the Bible teach prayer walking? Say, God, as I walk, I begin to claim my dreams. I begin to claim my inheritance, those unfulfilled expectations, those disappointments. I shake them off and I begin to walk to claim it in the name of Jesus. By the way, another passage that warns us about men like Glenn Barrett Jeremiah chapter 23, starting at verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak the visions or the dreams of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster will come upon you. Yeah, just dream. God wants you to dream bigger dreams. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth in a whirling tempest, and it will burst upon the head of the wicked. And the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he is executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. Yeah, the Bible warns us about dreamers and people who preach their own dreams and visions. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. The Bible is saying that dream a bigger dream. 
The only place you can find contentment in the Bible is through the Apostle Paul when he says this, I have learned to be content with and I've learned to be content without because his personal satisfaction doesn't come from what he has or doesn't have. His personal satisfaction comes from serving the purposes of God and following the dream of God for his life. But understand this, the Bible says God will enlarge. Oh, yeah, God will enlarge. Oh, what a great God this must be. He can, he can meet my felt need of narcissism and, and make my life large. Oh, because I'm so important. Got to dream a bigger dream. Not your neighbor, say, dream a bigger dream. I wonder if you know this verse, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. According- yeah, I'm very familiar with how Louis Giglio completely took that out of context and made it say what it doesn't say. Sounds like you're getting ready to do the same thing. According to his, his power that is at work within us, he can do immeasurably more. That, you, know, you know what the Bible is saying there? Can you help me out this morning? It's saying this, dream a... No, it's not. By the way, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, I want to point this out. Okay, There's a real danger with this type of message, and that's this. It's got the emphasis all on the wrong syllable, and this is a setup for really you experiencing deep depression and despair and losing your faith, okay? Ephesians chapter 3, I'll start at verse 14 and point this out, that verse 14 through verse 21 work together as a unit. You'll see what the unit is very shortly here. Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the width and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness, with all the fullness of God, And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forevermore. Amen. Okay, here's the idea. Paul is praying, and he's praying that the Christians and the churches in Ephesus would be strengthened. That's what he's praying for. He's not praying that they would dream bigger dreams. It's not what he's praying at all. He's praying that they would be strengthened. Paul, if anybody, understands that Christianity can be a very difficult marathon. And so he's praying for them for strength. Okay, And that's something that's comforting for us because each and every one of us in the day-to-day grind just knows just how hard it is. And so this is the idea. Pray, the, the, Paul is praying for them for them to have strength and to be strengthened. At the end there, at verse 3, sorry, verse 20 in chapter 3, begins the benediction, the last part of the prayer. Now to him who is able to do measurably more than we can think or ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, it's a benedictory thought that is exalting and giving glory to God. Okay, it's Paul is not here praying that you dream bigger dreams. And there's a real danger in the concept of, oh, God wants you to dream bigger dreams. 
All of a sudden, if you're not dreaming a big dream, God's mad at you because you're not dreaming a big enough dream. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, there's no law that says thou shalt dream big dreams. And if you're not, you're you're running afoul of God's will for your life. Absolutely not. Okay, the other part of it is is that now, well, if you, now if you end up as a Christian plumber or a Christian garbage collector or a janitor or something like that. Well, at this point, what are you to think about the God who's who's telling you to dream bigger dreams and all that kind of stuff? This isn't teaching that. And see, this is a setup for absolute failure so that you come to a point in your life where you're thinking, I, God must not like me or he's just not there. I don't even know if I believe in him anymore because he, here the Bible, I was told that it promises me that he's going to do abundantly more for me. And my life's been difficult. And I've experienced persecution because I said I was a Christian. People don't like me. I don't have a great job. You know, um, when I explained to my spouse that I had become a Christian, she left me. You know, I'm not experiencing more. I'm experiencing less. Well, this is not telling you to dream bigger dreams. The prayer is that you would be strengthened. And for somebody who's experiencing the real Christian life and the real difficulties that go along with it, the temptations, the struggle uh, with our enemies, sin, death, the devil, your own flesh, uh, the world, praying for strength is something that's comforting because that's something we all need in order to get through this life. It's not praying, you know, Paul's not asking you to dream bigger dreams. He's praying that you'd be strengthened. Big difference. But don't let that, you know, it, don't let the biblical text in context confuse Glenn Barrett because he typed into his computer, you know, uh, a word search for the word dream, and now he's supposedly doing a biblical teaching. But he's not. Come on, dream a, dream a bigger dream. Luke chapter 6, given it will be given to you. I love this. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, and be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. God is saying here to dream a bigger dream. No, he's not. Read it in context. It has nothing to do with you dreaming a dream. You know the amount of times I've told my children off in McDonald's for spilling their milkshake or spilling their Coke? It doesn't matter how many restaurants we go to. Invariably, one of us will end up with something in our lap because the kids have spilled built it and we teach our kids when they're pouring a drink to stop at the top but how many of you know most kids don't stop at the top it's always running over especially when they're pouring a fizzy drink and it froths up and it happens to us all the time that's what God does there can we go back to that verse given it will be given to you pressed down shaking together and running over do you know blessing is messy if you want your life to be blessed get ready to be messed up by God now, for some of you control freaks, that's going to create a little bit of panic this morning. But hey, feel free. Panic away right now. Go. I can see you. Dream a bigger dream. Matthew chapter 1, uh, 21, verse 22. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Wow. I wonder what you're going to do with that right now. We're going to either put that down to the American church or realize that this is actually in the Bible. It ain't. The way you're teaching it, it's really not a biblical teaching at all. You just dreamed it up. Time to dream a bigger dream. Pray a bigger prayer. 
Yeah. What if I want to pray a small prayer like the one that Jesus taught us how to pray? Would I be running afoul of God's will? You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That seems like a pretty small prayer. Nothing about dreaming big dreams there. Not at all. Um, hmm. I'll just stick with the small prayer that Jesus taught us how to pray. How's that? Don't whittle down your prayer life to the level of past expectations and fulfillment. Dream a bigger dream and pray a bigger prayer. The next verse, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Oh, don't be afraid this morning. You're not going to tell the entire story. You're just going to pull this verse, don't be afraid, just believe. Man, that's a fantastic story. I call it the story of the two daughters. Uh, yeah, um, one's the daughter of a synagogue leader who's literally at the point of death, and the other is the woman with the issue of blood who's been bleeding for 12 years. It just so happens that the uh, synagogue ruler's daughter is 12 years old too. I mean, this is a, you know, it's, it's a fantastic story. Now, it's don't worry, just believe. Really? Morning. Just dream a bigger dream. Okay, that is just absolute violence to this text, and I am mm, so frustrated. I feel like I need to teach a biblical story because it's in context, because this guy's making me upset. Hang on. Here it is. I will be reading it from the uh, Gospel of Mark accounts, uh, his account. I just find it to be just absolutely fascinating and comforting. I call it the story of the two daughters. Now, yeah, I understand that, you know, that's what I call it doesn't really matter, but I think that's a good way to set up this story. And since Glenn here doesn't know how to preach anything biblical really at all, <clears throat> I have to set in here just for my own sanity's sake. Okay, so Mark chapter 5, verse 21 is where I'll start. I, I read from the ESV because I consider it to be a very good English translation. But here's what it says. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, got to pause here. The historical context of this is going to tell us a little bit about what's going on in the story, in the backstory. Okay, so there's a woman in this town who, for 12 years, has had a discharge of blood. Okay, think feminine hygiene kind of problem. That's what we're talking about. And according to the Mosaic law, for 12 years, this woman has been unclean. Okay. That means she can't participate in the synagogue worship. She can't even come into town. She has to tell people she's unclean. She gets to hang with the lepers and those kind of folk, okay, for 12 years. And so Jarius would be familiar with her, okay? He would, you know, in a small town anyway, he would be familiar with her. So that kind of sets this all up, okay? So a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Okay, 
put yourself in this woman's shoes. I mean, this is a woman who the the law of God has ostracized her. She, you know, it's horrible. So she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, pay attention to the details. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She didn't want to touch Jesus because she didn't want to make Jesus unclean. Okay? And at this point, she's going to sneak a miracle, is what's going on, so that nobody needs to know that she was there contrary to what she's supposed to be doing according to the law of Moses and making everybody else unclean, right? Okay, so, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. Okay? At this point, the disciples are thinking, what? <laughs> you can see it. You know, Jesus, listen, there's a whole crowd throwing him. People are touching you all over the place, and you're going to ask, who touched you? So Jesus looked around to see who had done it, but the woman knowing this is such a terrible story and so great at the same time. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear. And she was trembling. And she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. It's horrible. I mean, there she is. I mean, she's she knows she's been healed. Jesus stops everything. Who touched me? And now this woman... She's, she knows she's been had, and she is so afraid. She's trembling. This is great fear. And so you can just see she's trembling, and, and she's confessing everything. And what's her expectation? She is in so much trouble, right? And Jesus said to her, Daughter daughter he doesn't chastise her he doesn't rebuke her he hears her story and he calls her daughter daughter your faith has made you well go in peace and be healed of your disease rather than rebuke she receives peace Rather than being chastised, he embraces her and calls her daughter. Rather than being rebuked for potentially making Jesus unclean, which would have been, that didn't happen at all, because Jesus couldn't be made unclean by a leper because he would clean the leper upon touch, you know, or anybody like that. So he, in mercy and grace and love, calls her daughter, tells her her faith in him has made her well, 
and to go in peace and be healed of your disease. And she did, right? So while this was going on, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This is the reason why I call it the two daughters. So while all of this is going down, while the one daughter is being healed, the original daughter who is at the point of death, and they got to get Jesus there quick, she dies. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Jesus isn't here saying dream bigger. Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. Believe in me. Believe. Trust. The same way this woman, who had just been healed of her issue of blood, believed and had faith. And this is where the Greek is a a little more helpful. Because the Greek word for faith, the noun, is pistis. The Greek verb for believe is pestuo. It's the, so he, daughter, your pistis has made you well. And now we're to the synagogue ruler. Do not fear only pistuo, right? Only believe you could see then the, the connection between. So he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James and, and uh, John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, Jesus is the only person who can talk like this. So they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and talked to the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And then taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And I think that there's a, you know, there's a there's a backstory here that we can never quite get to. But the fact that the woman who had the issue of blood was for twelve years, same amount of years old this little girl was, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Great story, fantastic amazing story that tells us about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The merciful, the kind, the man who heals those who have been outcast by the law, who doesn't rebuke and turn away those who truly come to him in faith, but he heals them and forgives them and makes them whole. This is great news. This is a great story. It has nothing to do with dreaming bigger dreams, like Glenn here is trying to make it say, Anyway, I hate to say this, but back to this sermon. The words of Jesus dream a bigger dream. The next verse. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Come on, say it with me now. The Bible is saying dream. Could you say it with some passion for me? He's saying dream dream a bigger dream. Now you've got to respond far better, church, because if, if I start preaching the way you're responding, that's going to yeah. dream a bigger dream. If you can. Do you remember the account? Jesus, if you can, heal my child. If you can. 
Jesus is incredulous. What do you mean if I can? Of course I can. Have you seen my CV lately? Have always been, will always be. Had a dream, made it, created it, perfect. You messed it up though. If you can. Next verse. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting in 2013 and believe a bigger dream. Believe a bigger dream. Come on, church. I, I, I know. I know. I'm coming, coming against something in our nation. I, I know. I know that this is kind of not what we're used to in our nation, is it? This this idea of of optimism and faith and expectation and and prosperity and believing for bigger things. But the Bible is saying to dream a bigger dream. It's time to dream a bigger dream. The next verse says this. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. This is not big. He literally is like conflating a whole bunch of stories from the Gospels. Is that sappy music I hear playing in the background? It's time to dream a bigger dream. Now it's easy for the pastors and and life group leaders to, to dream a bigger dream. But what about dreaming a bigger dream with us? Can you imagine what Manchester, Salford, Trafford, do we want Trafford saved? I guess so. Greater Manchester, can you imagine? Can you imagine with me? Can you just dare to dream with me for a moment? What it would look like? If people knew Jesus. Not the weird people who know Jesus. We've got enough of them. Everybody's somebody else's weirdo anyway. But Come on, I want you to dream with me for 5,000. Dream a bigger dream. Life group leaders, dream a bigger dream. The reason we're doing Alpha in life groups at the end of January is so that together, corporately, we can dream a bigger dream. Invite your friends. family because I've discovered the more I get to know Jesus the more amazing he is another verse but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved called to dream a bigger dream Notice he keeps saying that phrase. Apparently, if he just keeps repeating it, people will think it's actually in the Bible, but it's not. He can't find it anywhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach this. James chapter 1, verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Now, understand this. This is not name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. This is not the Mercedes is in the garage moment. We're talking about the person who may ascend the hill of the Lord. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. There's something to be said for the fear of the Lord in 2013. doesn't mean to be scared of him. 
It means understanding that God is so holy, so right. I, I, I dare not do this and I dare not go there and I dare not say this because I have a holy fear of the Lord. I'm in awe of him. That as you walk that dream of that life of righteousness, and we all struggle with that. None of us are pure. Nikki Gumbel tweeted the other night, don't come to church expecting perfect people. Come to church expecting to find people who are on a journey. Everyone's broken. Everyone's hurting. It says here, but you must believe and not doubt. Dream a bigger dream. In the workplace that you find yourself in, dream a bigger dream. That doesn't necessarily mean that you become the boss. It means that you become the best person God has called you to be. I, I love that moment. Sophie and I love that moment in Lord of the Rings when um, Samwise Ganji, you know, this, the, the second hobbit there, that kind of, you've got the one carrying the ring and who's the other one? There's this moment where he says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry the ring but I can carry you. Talk about a big dream. I wonder who you can carry through 2013. Who are you supporting? Who are you standing with? Who are you helping to dream a bigger dream? Because I've discovered, church, that when you help someone dream a bigger dream, God gets involved in a greater way with your dream. Must believe and not doubt. And I guess the question I want to ask you this morning, church, is this. Is what were you doing? What were you believing for before life got the better of you? Back, if you can remember back when, what was your dream? Some of you have dreamt of traveling, never done it. Some of you have dreamt of love, but never really kind of taken the risk that love is. Some of us in this place have dreamt of family, dreamt of business, only for the business to falter. Say, Glenn, what should I do? Everyone say, Glenn, what should I do? I'm glad you asked. Uh, I was driving back from vacation with my family, just a few days in Scarborough, with Jason and Kim. And all of a sudden from the back seat, Georgia says, I can see a mustache. So I instantly go. Sophie goes. <laughs> in trouble for that. And then I realized that she was talking about the clouds. Remember doing that when you were a kid? Lying down on the grass. It's horrible doing it in Australia because the green ants would climb up your trousers and bite you. It's horrible. 
remember leaning back and looking at the clouds and making shapes. It's funny, actually, more often than not, people couldn't see what you were seeing. How many of you remember that? There's an elephant. Where? There. That's not an elephant. That's a tree. That's not a tree. I guess if there was going to be homework to dream another dream, dream a bigger dream, it would be simply this, this week. Don't just rush through the week. Teach yourself how to dream again. Clouds, we've got plenty of it in Manchester. Sometime this week, grab a cup of tea. And with no limitations, begin to dream a dream. Get your mind working in the realm of let's pretend again. With no limitations. The devil would whisper in your ear, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? And you've got to do that. And you can't do that because of this. And what about this? And what about that? And yet the child of God sits back and says, God, help me to dream a dream. Genesis chapter 37, verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And what I love about all of our lives is that our lives started in a place where God dreamt for us. Don't you love that this morning? God dreamt about you. He didn't just dream about you, but he loved his dream about you. The Bible says he loved you so much that 2,000 years ago, though sin had come into the world and ruined aspects of the dream, And sin was affecting our hearts and our capacity to dream. The product of sin was that our dreams were infected and affected. Really? The the effect of sin is that it destroyed our dreams. Good night. Who in their right mind would believe that this is the Christian message? And that Jesus came to solve the problem of sin, which means he's come to restore your dreams. This is a lie from the pit of hell, literally. But Jesus said, I love you so much that I will come, that I will give my life for you so that you can dream again. Which is why John 10, 10. Really? Jesus came so that you can dream again. What a bunch of malarkey. 10 says this, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the full. It's time to... By the way, that's totally out of context. Visit my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash fighting the number four, the faith. And you will see, I've got a section in there about, uh, you know, John 10, 10 and the abundant life. And I take great pains and walk you through it. It's not what this passage is saying. The dream, a bigger dream, in Jesus' name. All right, so there's our dream a bigger dream sermon, a sermon designed to meet the felt needs of the narcissists in the UK. Not to teach God's word correctly, no, no, no. Uh, To teach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, no, 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 no. But to 
meet the felt needs of narcissists by ripping all these passages out of context and telling you that Jesus' death on the cross was so that you can dream again. Flat out lie. False gospel, false teaching from a false teacher who's pointing you to yourself rather than telling you to deny yourself and take up your cross. This is a false teaching and a false gospel that will land Glenn and his listeners who follow him and believe what he's saying in hell unless Christ grants them repentance of this false gospel, false teaching regarding Christ. Pray for them. They really, truly are in danger of the fires of hell. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 